I used to always tease my father and say he was psychic, but he didn't believe in that stuff, so. Hana Ali once told Crescent Sports Media she thought her father had an uncanny ability to know things he shouldn't have known. This is Muhammad Ali, the heavyweight champion of the world. She said he could predict fight rounds, tragic events, or even just enter a place he had no prior knowledge of and immediately understand its significance. He had such an amazing confidence in everything that happened in life. Down at the lunar station, Cape Kennedy, on the way to Mars for the first universal title. And so in 1966, Muhammad Ali joked to radio host Michael Eisner about an imaginary title he had to travel all the way to Mars to win. He had the world heavyweight title, but he predicted something bigger than this world. There will be seven satellites circling the United States, bouncing the fight here. We have to stop at about 10 space stations on the way. 1967, the year after this recording, Ali was banned from boxing. The universal title that Ali mentions is interesting enough, but the dates he mentions are significant too. We estimate our time at getting there in about 10 years, 1976. The year he said he'd arrive at the fight for the universe was 1976. In real life, in 1975, he was at the peak of his career. I'm not at the point in life where the whole world knows me. At that time, the Nation of Islam as Ali knew it had ended, and he transitioned with the community to Orthodox Islam. I'll be 10 years older, but I will still be in good shape. I expect the fight to go about 12 seconds. I'm fighting the green giant up there named Pelisha Kawaka. And after knocking him out, I hope to be back on Earth at about 1986. And by 1986, Ali had retired for good. His Parkinson's was more evident, officially diagnosed two years earlier. And he just married Lonnie Ali, the woman he later co-found the Muhammad Ali Center with in the hometown of Louisville. So I hope that uh, all of you will be here waiting for me and tell your children before uh, they come into this world here on Earth that the champion is leaving now and I will be back in 20 years with the universal title. Thank you. The universal title. Even on planet Earth, it was bigger than boxing. Something rooted in a singular faith, but with a global message. Imagine I'm the most familiar face in the whole universe, worldwide in every country. And why be popular? Why be so-called great or wealthy and not contribute nothing back for mankind? From America Abroad Media, PRX, and the Muhammad Ali Center, I'm Preacher Moss, and this is The Universal Title, a podcast on Muhammad Ali and his spiritual journey. From his Baptist roots in Louisville to becoming the best-known Muslim on the world stage, this is the story of how Muhammad Ali won The Universal Title. The Harvard class of 1975 invited Muhammad Ali to speak tonight because he is not only a fine athlete and the world heavyweight champ, but also because he has wisdom from outside the boxing world, which he has come here to share with us tonight. So without saying anything further, because the champ says it all, 
Here's Professor Muhammad Ali. The chant was at Harvard to entertain and educate. He floated on the campus and gave them his signature Ali shuffle. His feet sliding back and forth so fast they appeared to blur in motion. Gave them a one-two poem. This poem explains how I feel to be as great as me. This is it. Me? Wee! But when Ali started preaching, he left all joking aside. The great teachers and the great prophets of God, they did not become what they were by their miracles or their wonder workings. What was most apparent in them was their loving manner. More than a thousand students hanging on to Ali's every word, and he asked them to train their hearts. Love can be seen in all aspects of life once we understand it. If we study the qualities of the heart, we will find that the heart quality is a loving quality. It becomes the loving manner, the manner of God himself. And all such attributes as greatness, tolerance, gentleness, mercy, compassion, spring from the heart. I'm Timothy Giannotti, and I'm the president of the American Islamic College in Chicago. Dr. Timothy Giannotti served as an advisor to Ali's family on Islamic funeral preparations for the champ. And he says this idea of cultivating the heart is part of the traditional Islamic path. The heart has to be gradually emptied out of all those things in our own minds and hearts that rival our love and our devotion to God. And there's only one way to cultivate the heart quality, and that is to become more and more selfless. Not selfish, but selfless. And perhaps the most difficult idol for us to dethrone in the heart is our own sense of egocentrism. What prevents man from the loving manner is the thought of his self. And the more we think of self, the less we think of others, until at the end of the journey in life, self meets us like a big giant and a giant will prove to be the stronger. But with the first step we take, if we take it on the spiritual path, we struggle with this giant. The ego, unbalanced, unchecked, that was the enemy. And I think this is particularly difficult for people who are are famous and people who have achieved the kind of worldly prominence that Muhammad Ali achieved. It's natural to have ego. Ali used this to his advantage. That's right. I have wrestled with an alligator. I done tussled with a whale. I done handcuffed lightning, throw thunder in jail. That's bad. But as Ali grew wiser, he desperately wanted a clean slate. As he reached his 40s and onward, he lay awake in bed at night wondering, if God would have judged me on just what I did today, would I go to heaven or hell? Each new day, he saw as a chance to do better through good deeds and repentance. If every human has an ego, Islam encourages its believers to train the ego for good and repent when they fail. Here's Imam Mansur Sabri. God is the most forgiving. He's the all-forgiving. He's the most merciful. He's the all-merciful. The religion that calls on us to worship God through asking for forgiveness through us feeling as though our slate is being cleaned over and over and over again. Over and over again, fans heard Ali supplicate this way throughout the years. Each time, he hoped for his slate to be cleaned. For Muslims, one of the greatest symbols of this purification of self 
takes place in the Hajj ritual, the pilgrimage to Mecca. Ali made it several times, first in 1972 with Herbert Muhammad, his manager and a spiritual advisor, and at least one other time in 1988. Muhammad Ali, the former uh, world heavyweight uh, boxing champion, uh, welcome to Channel 2 and welcome to Saudi Arabia. During the Hajj, Muslims from all over the world travel to Mecca. Pilgrims participate in religious rituals that have remained unchanged since the time of the Prophet Muhammad. Men wear two pieces of simple white cotton, the same thing Ali would eventually be buried in. Many of the Hajj rituals emphasize overcoming struggle and adversity through faith. One in particular is Sa'i. Pilgrims commemorate Hajjah and her struggles to find sustenance for her baby, the future prophet Ismail. Dr. Giannati again. So she was this woman who was stranded in the desert with her son. During Sa'i, pilgrims run back and forth, back and forth, seven times like Hajjah did between two mountains, Safa and Marwa. As a pilgrim, Ali would have done the same. Hajjah was vulnerable in the desert, running back and forth between the hills, striving hard to find sustenance for her infant. She had faith in God that he'd see her through. It's always the power of God who works through vulnerable people and does amazing things in spite of their vulnerability, or maybe sometimes even because of their vulnerability. Ali had once seen himself as lost in what the Nation of Islam called the wilderness of North America. He journeyed between different understandings of the divine. He had believed God would see him through. Hajj had been a part of that, and it was a marker for Ali's ongoing battle with the ego. After all, Ali had done much he felt the need to repent for. In the nation of Islam, Ali believed there was only this life. When you died, that was the end. So, my friends, take it for what it is worth. Your heaven and your hell is right here on this earth. But with his transition to mainstream Islam, Ali began to believe in life after death. The afterlife made him accountable for all his deeds on earth. And so, in 1978, Ali told an interviewer, Now, say there's a heaven and hell, which I believe. Now, I don't want to go to hell. So God's judging how I treat people. I, so I'm going to spend the next week the rest of my life working for God, working for humanity, doing something. His fame couldn't save him from God's wrath. His money would do him no good. See, God don't care about me being Muhammad Ali, the great champion. There's no VIP treatment in heaven. The way Ali saw it, he had good reason to be afraid. He might have been a Muslim since the 1960s, but he didn't become what he called a true believer until much later. In Islam, anyone can be a Muslim but only one who truly practices the religion can be considered a mu'min, a believer. The more Ali learned about his religion, the more he understood that distinction. The more he felt ashamed for his earlier misdeeds, especially committing adultery in some of his marriages. Ali's daughter, Maryam Ali. Well, repentance is, is extremely important in Islam, and really, for Muslims, it's the only way to get to heaven. In the mid-1980s, Ali had been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, and that concern became more urgent. He began to publicly express regret for the infidelities he committed during some of his marriages. He also shared this with his children, including Miriam. 
you know, my father never tried to act like he was a perfect man. One of the best things I loved about my father is that he would acknowledge his faults, his mistakes to us. All families are not perfect. Parents are not perfect. He's been divorced numerous times. He knew what his sins were. And as I became older in my teens, he we would say, in Islam, Allah always will listen to your asking for forgiveness, you know, because he knew he needed that. Ali had told his biographer, Hauser, he was sorry for the adultery in his earlier marriages. He was sorry that he had hurt his wives. He acknowledged that he had offended God, and it hadn't even made him happy. You're not happy? No. Man chases after everything in the world. He looks for everything that appears to be happiness, but in the end, he finds that there's no true happiness except in God, doing something for God, humanity, helping people. Ali wasn't a saint. He, he will be the first to acknowledge that. This is Imam Zaid Shocker, co-founder of Zaytuna College and Master of Ceremonies at Ali's funeral and memorial services. Ali was a womanizer. He went through that phase. So he, he realized that those actions weren't the best way to exemplify what a Muslim should be doing. He also realized the harm that it caused uh, to his family. And he repented from that. All the women that Ali had been married to, except his first wife who died years earlier, were present and recognized at his memorial, just as he wanted. There was another uh, thing that really bothered Ali. And that was his treatment of Joe Frazier in the lead up to the thriller in Manila. Frazier keeps smiling as he corners Ali to the ropes. Ali beats him to the punch. Referee Carlos Padilla. The third Ali Frazier fight where Ali uh, was carrying a gorilla around and pulverizing it and, and, uh, referring to, to Joe Frazier and, and what can only be described as racist terms and in a very uh, derogatory, racist way that not only hurt Frazier uh, personally, but it also hurt Joe Frazier's family. And that was something that Ali repented from. And I think he was so passionately sincere in that repentance and in reaching out to, to Joe Frazier and his family that he actually accomplished that. Here's Marvis, Joe Frazier's son. In the end, uh, before uh, my father passed away, he and Ali came together in love and in unity and oneness of the spirit. And uh, man, I was so happy to see that. They hugged, embraced, and uh, it was something cool. Ali had been officially diagnosed with Parkinson's in 1984 and often said that his illness was a trial for his mistakes. Mariam Ali recalls a conversation she and her father had before a party in his honor. He was still walking, but the Parkinson's was kind of taking a hold a little bit more. And I said, Dad, <laughs> do you think that having Parkinson's help you be a more faithful husband and a better Muslim? And he paused for a long time. <laughs> and I said, OK, that pause must mean yes. <laughs> And um, he said, I'd rather suffer now than in the hereafter. And my knees kind of buckled. It was just a strong statement. 
Dr. Giannotti says it wasn't just about divine retribution. But he saw this not as a punishment, but as a powerful teaching from God that, you know, all this time I've been saying I'm the greatest, but God gave me this as a gift to teach me that God is the greatest. Although Ali's famous razor-sharp wit and speech was slow by Parkinson's, he didn't hide his struggle in his why. And see, this life is short. This life is a preparation for the eternal life. And people who are spiritual know what I'm talking about. But in the Holy Quran, it says if you got one ounce of prayer, you can't enter paradise. For Ali, his illness was a purifying trial. It made him remember God at every turn, which is a celebrated form of worship in Islam. Ali's search for guidance on Dhikr. Dhikr is often done alone or in groups, with prayer beads or just using one's fingers, repeating words of remembrance for a set number of times. He sought out some of the most well-respected Sufi leaders among Sunni Muslims, such as the late Sheikh Ahmed Kaftaro, the former Grand Mufti of Syria, and Sheikh Mohammed Hisham Kabani. Ali did not simply repent. He also found ways to use his position to help others. Even before he embraced traditional Islam, Ali had traveled to many nations and met Muslims all over the world. The only thing that made me feel free, that connected me with Saudi Arabia, the Islamic religion, connected me with Pakistan, Morocco, Syria. So I choose to follow the Islamic path because I've never saw so much love. I never saw so many people hugging each other, kissing each other, praying five times a day, the women in the long garments, the way they would eat. You can go to any country, say, Assalamu alaikum, alaikum assalam. You got a home, you got a brother. Ali had spent years as a pariah in certain segments of American society. But the more traditional he became in his practice of Islam, the more the whole world seemed to embrace him. And Ali, in return, cared for the world. He used his status to broker diplomacy and fight to free political prisoners. In 1979, he offered himself to the Iranian government in exchange for the release of 60 U.S. embassy employees. It was a failed attempt, but Ali's letter of support lifted their spirits. In 1985, just a year after Ali's diagnosis, he made a risky rescue attempt in Beirut. It was at the height of a civil war. He tried to bring home four Americans from captivity, including a university librarian, a Presbyterian minister, and a Roman Catholic priest. He was not successful. They're Muslims, and we know that if we can have a few words with them in private, talking to them as one brother to another, we hope that we have enough influence to save the lives of the people involved. By November 1990, Ali was back at it again, this time to Baghdad to negotiate for the release of American hostages. Don't go, he was warned. You could be taken prisoner. You could be killed. Saddam Hussein had invaded Kuwait months earlier, and the first Iraq war was about to start. Even the U.S. government thought Ali was a fool. But he didn't let his pride or Parkinson stop him from doing what he believed was right. Ali's longtime manager, Herbert Muhammad, was on hand to translate Ali's hand signals and speech. Saddam Hussein responded. أننا سوف لن نجعل الحاج محمد عليك لا يعود 
I'm not going to let Hajj Muhammad Ali go back to the United States without having a number of the American citizens here accompanying him. Ali expected no praise for the 15 fellow Americans he was able to get released. And he didn't receive any. He kept going. Pearl was in Pakistan working on a story about Islamic fundamentalists when he was abducted. The first pictures of Pearl arrived via email with a message attached accusing Pearl of being a CIA spy. In 2002, Ali wrote a letter to the Muslim extremists holding Daniel Pearl captive in Pakistan. He appealed to their knowledge of the Quranic teaching that to save one innocent life is to save all of humanity. To take one innocent life is to kill all humanity. He thought this might move the hearts of Pearl's captors. Sadly, it did not. The Wall Street Journal reporter Daniel Pearl, who was kidnapped in the Pakistani city of Karachi a month ago, has been murdered by his captors. Ali's wife, Lani, remembers how troubled he was by Pearl's brutal execution. And Muhammad, I think, was hurt, embarrassed, and very sorrowful that People who had called themselves Muslims had done something so awful, so gruesome, so inhumane. So he felt incumbent upon himself to reach out to the Pearl family, to represent Islam in, a, in the right way, to be there. Pearl's parents were moved by the boxer's intercession and invited him to the private memorial service. Ali continued his advocacy till his last years. In 2015, Jason Rezai, a Washington Post reporter, was held in Iranian prison for hundreds of days. Trial resumed Monday for jailed Washington Post reporter Jason Rezian. He's been held in Iran for more than a year, accused of espionage. Ali also wrote a letter on his behalf. Rezai began almost immediately receiving better treatment after Ali's intervention and finally gained his freedom just months before Ali died. On Ali's death, Razan said on CNN, I can't express in words uh, how much it meant to me getting the support of, of the champ touched me in ways that, that uh, uh, just still ripple through my life. Do you recognize her? Janet Evans. Who gets it next? The greatest. The 1996 Centennial Olympic Games, where Ali was the surprise guest to light the torch. And the response he evokes is part affection, part excitement, but especially respect. What a moment. Muhammad Ali, of course, an Olympian, as young Cassius Clay, gold medal boxer, 1960, the Games of Rome. To become arguably the most famous person for many, this confirmed his role as a universal champ. Former President Bill Clinton saw it as a true testimony of Ali's faith. I'll never forget it. I was sitting there in Atlanta. By then we knew each other. By then I felt it. I had some sense of what he was living with, and I was still weeping like a baby, seeing his hand shake and his leg shake, and knowing, by God, he was going to make those last few steps. No matter what it took, the flame would be lit, the fight would be won, 
the Spirit would be affirmed. I knew it would happen. Because he is a free man of faith, sharing the gifts we all have. In these later years of his life, his 40s, his 50s, 60s, Ali began to think more and more of the ways he could have an impact beyond his life. And that included educating people about what he called true Islam. And so when he had Parkinson's, what was he doing? He said, man, I can't sign all these autographs. So I'm a pre-sign on sheets of paper. Then he says, wait a minute, I could spread the religion of Islam and sign my name on Islamic literature. Cases and cases and cases of pamphlets on Dawah. He figured if they wanted his autograph, he was going to give them the autograph, but he was going to give them something to, to read about, read about his religion as well, read about Islam. Allah glory to thee, O Allah, and thine is the praise, and blessed is thy name. In the name of Allah, the beneficent, the merciful, all praise be to Allah, the Lord of the worlds, the beneficent, the merciful. These pamphlets were a form of da'wah, an Islamic principle that calls people to Islam by educating them on the religion. Here's Lani Ali again. Muhammad believed every day your life was da'wah. The way you lived your life was da'wah. The example you set was da'wah. This was different from his days of shaking up the world from the ring. This was a quieter Ali who understood his new role and wanted to make his faith accessible. He didn't like to tell people what to do, but he believed that he had to be the best representation of Islam because he knew a lot of people looked at him and he was known the world over for being a Muslim. As a symbol, Ali was especially important for Black Muslims in America. Harvard Law Professor Intisar Rob talks about when traveling abroad, Muslims are often confused how she could be Black, American, and Muslim. And then... And all I had to say was Muhammad Ali. And then it was immediately clear, oh, you're that kind of Muslim, the Muslim that stands up for justice and the Muslim that is very much American and very much Muslim. So that one word, Muhammad Ali, you know, stood for all of that. In the last year or so of Ali's life, he'd been sick often and he'd been hospitalized several times. This is Jonathan Ike, one of Ali's biographers. Things were not going well, and when he went into the hospital for the last time, the family quickly gathered, and people, you know, they came from all around the country to be with him. The three Abrahamic faith traditions were represented at his hospital bedside. Ali's children, Muslim and Christian, his Jewish grandson, Jacob Ali Wertheimer, whose bar mitzvah made national news when the champ attended, and of course his wife, Lonnie. They were all there. The imam was with Ali and said a prayer, and they sang, and um, Ali passed quietly. The family was really grateful that he had his faith and that they were with him at the end. I can only imagine that Ali felt comfort in knowing that, that his prayers, that he had heard the prayer one more time and he, that he had his loved ones around him. Ali had died on June 3rd, 2016, a Friday, the holiest day of the week for Muslims, a day of coming together as a community. He was buried the following Friday, 
during the holiest month of the Islamic lunar calendar, Ramadan. When it came to the person who would do Ali's final rites, he chose someone who shared a similar journey. The title is Imam, and the name is Zaid Shakir. Imam Zaid was also an African-American Baptist who had converted to Islam. I was blessed at the end of Muhammad Ali's life to be part of the team that was planning for his uh, passing. As Ali was transitioning from this life, Imam Zaid Shaka gave the Islamic testimony of faith in Ali's right ear. Ali's death was quiet, but the services that followed proclaimed the champ's values. First, there was the janazah, the Muslim funeral prayer. The following day was the memorial with many interfaith speakers. Imam Zaid led the ceremonies of both funeral and memorial, and he was helped by Dr. Timothy Giannotti. He really wanted his funeral to be Islamically correct and impeccable, but he also wanted it to be an expression for this love that he had, a love which knew no boundaries and knew no discrimination when it came to any kind of faith identification or gender. Peace, blessings, welcome. My name is Zay Shakir, and I'll be officiating the janazah for our dear, beloved brother, Muhammad Ali. On that day, his funeral prayer served as the great equalizer. Like on Hajj, no distinction was allowed in the ranks on account of race, religion, social status, nor political status. We welcome all of you here today. We welcome the Muslims. We welcome the members of other faith communities. The Janazah is a simple congregational prayer in a modified style similar to the Muslim five daily prayers. So now we will line up for the prayer. Allahu Akbar. Quran was recited after the Janazah prayer. After the Quranic recitation and translation, American Muslim leaders like Dr. Sherman Jackson spoke on behalf of the community that Ali had come to represent. Ali did more to normalize Islam in this country than perhaps any other Muslim in the history of the United States. As a cultural icon, Ali made being Muslim cool. Ali made being a Muslim dignified. Ali made being a Muslim relevant. Ali put the question of whether a person can be a Muslim and American to rest. Indeed, he KO'd that question. For many Americans, this would be the first time they would see a Muslim funeral rite on television. Muhammad wants us to see the face of his religion. Al-Islam, true Islam, as the face of love. Lonnie explained this at Ali's memorial the next day. Ali's universal appeal was the most evident at his death. With those who attended his funeral and those who took the stage and gathered in the audience to say goodbye to Ali at his memorial. 
It was the first Friday of Ramadan. Ali's memorial service was a three-hour event streamed globally. Sure, there were politicians, admirers of his boxing, but the focus was on a universal appeal of the spirit. We are especially grateful for the presence of the diverse faith leaders here today. And I would like to ask them to stand once more and be recognized. A rabbi. I come here to say that American Jews played an important role of solidarity with the African-American struggles in this country, and that we today stand in solidarity with Islamic community in this country and all around the world. The senior pastor of the largest African-American church in Kentucky, who compared Ali's working with the poor to Jesus walking amongst the most vulnerable. And I would submit to you that he walked with shuffling feet, not because of Parkinson's disease, but he walked with shuffling feet because he hang out with the folk in West Louisville who had shuffling feet. And many more. Neither the Janaza nor the memorial approach happened by accident. Ali knew. He'd been preparing for his funerary events for 10 years. He wanted to use all of it to send a final message. Here's Lonnie Ali. Nobody wants to talk about their death, but he knew that it was something that had to be done and he wanted it to be prepared in the way he wanted it to be executed. He wanted it to be a teaching moment to people of this is how I live my life and, you know, this is the way I'm, I'm ending it. With everybody gathered from all over, from all backgrounds, because I was open, I was inclusive, I was accepting, and I built bridges, and I made friends, and I, I loved people, and people loved me back. Ali's memorial and his Islamic funeral the day before became a symbol, a symbol of his American Muslim story and its universal qualities. And by making his funeral accessible to all, Ali took what was very specific to his Muslim beliefs and made it universal. He knew the impact it would have. Even in his death, Ali had pulled off a final act that was both public and deeply personal. One that would unite people across the globe and some might even say time. Of course he had. He held the universal title. The Universal Title is a production of America Abroad Media in partnership with PRX and the Muhammad Ali Center. The series was written by Precious Rashida Muhammad, along with Ahmed Ali Akbar, Maggie Van Dorn, and Aaron Lobel. Our editor is Emmett Ali Akbar. Maggie Van Dorn is the producer, and Rosalind Tordesillas is the associate producer. Engineering from Douglas Robertson, post-production sound and mix by PRX Productions, and Sandra Lopez Monsave. Cover art by Felicia Ann. The executive producers are Aaron Lobel, Farah Pandit, and Precious Rashida Muhammad. Support for this program has been provided by the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations, 
the Henry Luce Foundation, the El Hibri Foundation, and the Embassy of the United Arab Emirates. And for more information about the podcast, visit theuniversaltitle.com. I'm your host, Preacher Moss. Thank you for listening.